0: Bringing you the latest in tax credit news, this is Tax Credit Tuesday with your host, Michael Novogratik. The legislative challenges have been significant. We very much need legislation. we got to produce housing. We're still in a very volatile industry. It's a challenging atmosphere for almost anyone. We can't get all these mixed signals and messages. If he doesn't have a bipartisan bill, nothing's going to happen. Alternative energy is still very expensive. Hello, I'm Michael Novogratik, and this is Tax Credit Tuesday. Today is Tuesday, May twenty-fourth, two 2011. Today, I'm in Denver, where I'm speaking at the Colorado Housing Finance Agency's 2011 Housing Credit Summit. Later in the week, I'll be in Washington, D.C., where I'm speaking at the American Bar Association's Affordable Housing and Community Development Conference. I'll start this week's podcast with another update on the tax reform and deficit reduction talks taking place in Washington, D.C. Then, I'll review the findings of a report that examines the reporting of state tax expenditures. We've regularly discussed federal tax expenditures. This report discusses tax expenditures at the state level. In our long-term housing tax credit discussion, I'll summarize the findings of a report that suggests that the low-income housing tax credit could be used to address housing shortages at some domestic military installations. Then I'll also discuss a bill that was introduced last week that would abolish the National Housing Trust Fund, abolish it before it ever actually received any funding. In our New Market Tax Credit discussion, I'll review the latest Qualified Equity Investment Report from the CDFI Fund and I'll announce the keynote speakers for the upcoming spring New Markets Tax Credit Conference. I also note that we're still optimistic that the application round for the next round of New Market Tax Credits will still open sometime this month. In historic tax credit news, I have an update on shareable deductions of facade easements. I'll also describe changes that were recently enacted to Iowa's Historic Preservation Tax Credit and update listeners on the status of a bill to extend Louisiana's historic tax credit. Finally, turning to renewable energy news, we have news from the AWEA Wind Power Conference in Anaheim, California. That conference started on Sunday. I'll also discuss the recent expansion of Georgia's state solar energy tax credit. So if you're ready, let's get started. In general news... Last week, Treasury Secretary Tim Geithner affirmed President Obama's commitment to pursuing corporate, that's right, corporate tax reform. Now Reuters reports that Secretary Geithner said that the goal is to take up the issue of corporate tax simplification before the presidential election in 2012. Reuters also reports that Secretary Geithner said that the Treasury Department has been working to fashion a more sensible design for the tax code. Reports in early April had indicated that the administration was working on a proposal to trim or to reduce the corporate tax rate from 35% to somewhere in the high 20% range. This would be accomplished by eliminating and cutting various federal tax expenditures. There's even a report that a draft plan that includes various options is circulating within the White House. It was originally predicted that the Treasury Department would release this draft plan as early as this month. But, at the time of this recording that time frame does appear highly unlikely. In his remarks last week, Secretary Geithner noted that raising the national debt limit is currently the administration's first priority. As such, the beginning of the more serious discussion of corporate tax reform, including the release of the options paper, appears to be a couple of months away. Meanwhile, deficit reduction negotiations did sputter a bit last week with the news that Senator Tom Coburn had dropped out of the Gang of Six. The group of senators that are dubbed the Gang of Six had been meeting to hold deficit reduction talks with the goal of releasing a bipartisan compromise plan to reduce the deficit. Senator Coburn predicted that no meaningful deal could be reached until Democrats accept a greater share of savings from government benefit programs. Senator Coburn announced that he'd have his own plans for deficit reduction, that would cut $9 trillion in spending over the next decade. This deadlock is expected to worsen this week as the Senate is scheduled to take two symbolic votes. One vote is on the proposed budget Obama released in February, which is expected to be opposed by all 47 Senate Republicans. And then there's another vote on the budget that the House Republicans had adopted in April. This House Republican bill is expected to be opposed by all 53 Senate Democrats. Now, despite these obstacles, the Gang of Seven, which is led by Vice President Biden, is expected to continue meeting this week in the hopes of reaching agreement. Senator Mitch McConnell himself recently endorsed the efforts of this group as a way to achieve a deficit reduction agreement. The group is said to aspire to trillions of dollars in deficit reduction, I say aspire because reports indicate that they've only agreed on approximately $150 billion in cuts so far. Now, turning to the state level, the Center for Budget and Policy Priorities reported last week that states do not regularly examine tax expenditures in the same way that they do for on-budget expenditures. The Center released the information in a report called Promoting State Budget Accountability Through Tax Expenditure Reporting. The report examines the information that states collect on state tax expenditures. This includes tax credits, tax deductions, and tax exemptions. The report found that 43 states and the District of Columbia produce tax expenditure reports. Now, of those 43 reports, 10 states report only a few tax expenditures and or major taxes from their reports. Six states publish reports less than biannually, and two states did not make their reports accessible to the public via the web. The Center said that the poor reporting results lead to policymakers, the media, and the general public lacking information about the tax expenditure's effectiveness and effect on the state's budget. The report provided recommendations to improve transparency, encourage accountability, and save money. The Center for Budget and Policy Priorities recommends the following best practices. One item... Publish reports regularly, incorporate the report into the budget process, and make it available on the Internet. Another item, include all tax expenditures, such as explicit and implicit tax expenditures, tax expenditures enacted by the state that affect local government and those with lower costs or benefiting few taxpayers, and tax expenditures related to all taxes. Another item, that the reports should describe all tax expenditures include the current and anticipated future costs of the tax expenditures, provide the relevant legal citation and year of enactment, and provide detail on the taxpayers who benefit from the expenditure. They should also separately report state and local revenue losses. They also suggested, in an effort to improve analysis of the expenditures, that states should classify tax expenditures using the same categories as direct expenditures, and also state the purpose of each expenditure, evaluate the intent, to which that purpose has been accomplished, and analyze the distribution of the benefits by income level and size of business. Now, if you want to read the full report, you can go to www.novaco.com and click on the Hot Topics button and then select the Tax Expenditures link. In low-income housing tax credit news, in a recent report from the Government Accountability Office, military officials suggest that the low-income housing tax credit program could help address housing shortages near military installations. The GAO's report is entitled Military Housing, Enhancements Needed to Housing Allowance Process and Information Sharing Among Services. The report explores several factors affecting service members' challenges in obtaining off-base housing, including unit availability. According to the GAO, the Department of Defense identified 26 installations as significantly affected by growth. At 19 of those, the GAO found housing deficits ranging from 1 percent to more than 20 percent of total demand. For example, officials at four installations noted that service members are experiencing housing challenges. At Fort Riley, Kansas, the Department of Defense estimated a 4 percent deficit. Fort Bliss, Texas had a 15 percent deficit, and Cannon Air Force Base, New Mexico, and Fort Drum, New York both had 20 percent deficits. Installation officials told the GAO that the long-term housing Tax Credit program could effectively expand the available housing supply. Officials at Fort Bliss and Fort Riley also told the GAO that a provision included in the Housing and Economic Recovery Act that alters the way that the housing allowance is calculated does allow more service members to qualify for long-term housing until 2012. Officials at Fort Drum, which doesn't qualify for the program, estimated that an additional 200 local housing tax units would have been built near the installation if it had qualified for the program. Officials at all four installations expected housing needs to increase as personnel return to the bases. The entire report can be found on the reports and research page of the Affordable Housing Resource Center. For more information about developing affordable housing near military bases, I'd encourage you to contact my partner, Brad Weinberg. You can reach Brad at 240-235-1701. Or Brad.Weinberg, W E I N B E R G, at Novoco.com. Turning to legislative news, a bill introduced earlier this month would abolish the National Housing Trust Fund. Despite the fact that the Housing Trust Fund has yet been capitalized, the bill's sponsor, Congressman Ed Royce, called the fund a slush fund for special interest housing groups. He called it this when he introduced the legislation. The Housing Trust Fund was established by the Housing and Economic Recovery Act in 2008. The purpose was to increase the supply of affordable housing for low-income families. Now, the GSEs, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, were to have been the fund's initial funding sources, but they were placed into conservatorship shortly thereafter and no contributions were ever made. Recent legislative initiatives, such as the Preserving Homes and Communities Act, have sought to identify alternative funding sources for the Housing Trust Fund. The bill that was introduced by Congressman Royce was one of seven in a second round of legislation aimed at dismantling Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae. The first set of housing finance reform bills was introduced in March. Those bills were voted out of subcommittee but have not yet been taken up by the full committee. The subcommittee is expected to hold a hearing on the legislative package, including the bill to abolish the National Housing Trust Fund sometime this week. You can read more about the topic of the National Housing Trust Fund by going to the Hot Topics page at novacocom backslash Hot Topics. Just click on National Housing Trust Fund under the HUD tab. In new market tax credit news, last week the Community Development Financial Institutions Fund released its monthly update to its ongoing Qualified Equity Investment Issuance Report. The report identifies the dollar amount of allocation authority that has been issued to investors already and the amount remaining to be issued. The report comes out every month. In April, about $200 million of QEIs were finalized. This is a 33% increase from the amount finalized in March, which was about $150 million. The amount of available New Market Test Credit Allocation Authority, that's the amount that's not yet been committed formally, is more than $8.3 billion. That's as of May 1st. You can find a copy of the QEI report along with a graph illustrating the amount of QEIs that have been issued and the amount of authority remaining online at www.NewMarketsCredits.com. Turning to our Washington, D.C. New Market Task Credit Conference, there's still time to join your colleagues in the New Market Task Credit community at the Novogradic Spring New Market Task Credit Conference. As I mentioned, the conference will be in Washington, D.C., and it's on June 9th and 10th. Now, in addition to presenting a number of expert panel discussions about New Market Tax Credit finance and policy, along with several pre-conference workshops on Wednesday, we also have two exciting keynote speakers that are scheduled to address the conference. On Thursday, June 9th, attendees can hear from the newest member of the United States Senate, Senator Dean Heller of Nevada. They'll also hear from Brandon Carleton from the Treasury Department Office of Tax Policy. Now, At the time of this recording, we had well over 300 tax credit professionals scheduled to attend, and that number is growing daily. As I mentioned, you can still register online. Simply go to www.novaco.com or call 415 356 8000. I do hope to see you there. In historic tax credit news, we start our update on the topic of easements. As many of our listeners know, in late 2009, the Internal Revenue Service Advisory Council issued a report that discussed charitable deductions of easements and made recommendations for a fair and expeditious resolution of the issue. The paper noted that, and I quote, the current IRS audit effort strains the agency's resources and may fail to distinguish between a legitimate deduction and a tax shelter. Now in April 2011, Congressman Michael Turner, a Republican from Ohio, and Russ Carnahan, a Democrat from Missouri, Our co-chairs of the Congressional Historic Preservation Caucus, sent a letter to the IRS. The letter notes that the IRS has chosen to disregard the IRS Advisory Council's recommendation. In the letter, Congressman Turner and Carnahan specifically request a temporary but immediate moratorium on all enforcement actions by the IRS. Well, Stephen Miller, IRS Deputy Commissioner for Services and Enforcement, responded to Representative Turner last week. The letter notes that the IRS accepts its Advisory Council's recommendations in many cases. However, in other cases, it does not accept the recommendations. The letter goes on to say, and I quote, On the recommendations that you reference, we did not accept them for legal, policy, and practical reasons that we would be happy to discuss further. A similar letter apparently went to Congressman Carnahan as well. If you'd like to review a copy of the Advisory Council's recommendations and or the two letters, go to the Novigradic Historic Task Credit Resource Center. Click on Hot Topics, click on HTC, and click on Easements. And if you have additional questions about easements, I encourage you to contact my partner, Tom Bosha in Novigradic's Cleveland, Ohio office. Now, turning to the state level, late last month, Iowa enacted clarifying changes to their state's Historic Preservation and Cultural and Entertainment District Tax Credit. The Historic Preservation and Cultural and Entertainment District Tax Credit is equal to 25% of the qualified cost of rehabilitation of eligible property in Iowa. In Senate File 521, enacted April 28th, a definition was added for qualified rehabilitation costs which are defined as expenditures made for the rehabilitation of eligible property and includes qualified rehabilitation expenditures as defined in Internal Revenue Code Section 47. The the definition of the term Substantial Rehabilitation does depend on the type of property being rehabilitated. For commercial property, rehab costs must equal or exceed at least 50% of the assessed value of the property, excluding land prior to the rehabilitation and for residential property, or barn, rehab costs, they must exceed the lesser of $25,000 or 25% of the assessed value, that also excluding land. Currently, eligible property must be placed in service within 36 months of the date on which the project application was approved. However, the legislation changes that time period to 60 months. This legislation goes into effect July 1st and applies retroactively to projects approved the credits reserved on or after July 1st, 2009. A copy is a, of SF 521 can be found online at where else? www.historictaxcredits.com. Now heading down south from Iowa, we get to Louisiana. Last week, as expected, Senate Bill 63 passed on the floor of the Louisiana Senate by a unanimous vote. The bill which has the support of the Governor's Office, would extend the state's historic tax credit. The Senate bill is now being sent to the House, and within the House, referred to the House Ways and Means Committee. For more information about either state tax credit, I'd also encourage you to contact my partner Tom Bosha in our Cleveland, Ohio office. In renewable energy tax credit news, this week the wind power community is gathering in Anaheim, California, at the American Wind Energy Association's Wind Power 2011 conference. The conference started on Sunday, and it continues through tomorrow, Wednesday. The conference has 50 educational sessions. Now, according to the publication North American Wind Power, during the opening session on Monday, Representative Earl Blumenauer, a member of the House Ways and Means Committee, spoke about the need to implement long-term energy policies to help the wind energy fully come to scale. He said, and here I'm quoting, You've heard it on this stage. You'll hear it throughout the conference. We can't repeat it enough. Get the production tax credit extended. Continuing the quote, Our goal should not be a short-term extension, but to give you a window of opportunity that's long enough to realize the potential of your industry. Congressman Blumenhauer and continued, Quote, In the short term, we must make a public investment in terms of tax advantages and other subsidies to bring your industry to scale and we must have a long-term policy framework. Now, currently, the production tax credit does expire at the end of 2012, as many of our listeners know. Also expiring at the end of 2012 is the election to claim the investment tax credit in lieu of the production tax credit. Congressman Thornberry from Texas has introduced a bill in the House, he introduced it earlier this year, that would extend the production tax credit for 10 years. You can find a copy of that bill, H.R. 1023, at the Novigradic Renewable Energy Tax Credit Resource Center. Simply click on the Legislation tab. Now turning to the state level, Georgia's Governor Nathan Deal signed legislation last week to increase Georgia's solar energy tax credit to $5 million annually. That's for 2012, 13, and 14. This amount is double the current $2.5 million annual limit. Businesses are eligible to receive up to $500,000 in tax credits to offset the cost of installing solar-volatile electricity-generating systems. Homeowners are eligible to receive up to $10,500 in tax credits for residential solar energy systems. The tax credits must be taken over four years, and if the $5 million ceiling is reached in a year, eligible taxpayers that are on a waiting list have priority over taxpayers that apply for the credits in subsequent years. The Georgia Department of Revenue will determine other administrative details about the tax credits. The Georgia Solar Energy Association says the increased solar tax credits will help Georgia compete in the economic development market with a meaningful ripple throughout the state's economy. In 2010, clean energy tax credits totaling almost $2 million were awarded to 47 solar-voltaic projects and 90 solar-water heating installations in Georgia. The increased availability of tax credits is expected to provide encouragement and support for solar manufacturers, installers, suppliers, and other consultants in Georgia. Well, that brings me to the end of this week's report. Please join me again next week for another Tax Credit Tuesday. This is Michael Novogratik. I'll be back next Tuesday. Thanks for listening.